You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Gloss is the author of The Jump Off Creek, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, Wildlife, which won the James Tiptree Jr. Award, and the science fiction novel The Dazzle of Day, which was awarded the Penn Center West Fiction Prize. Her newest novel is The Hearts of Horses. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Molly, one of the things that strikes me is how you really self-identify as a Western writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about your history with that? That's kind of... it's kind of odd. <laughs> that I'm a woman and identify as a, as a Western writer? Is that well, what you mean? Well, just uh, uh, the idea of thinking I'm a Western writer. I mean. Mm. Well, gosh. Hmm. Uh, I uh, guess it's partly a matter of where I grew up. I'm a fourth generation Oregonian and partly a matter of where my dad grew up. He was a Texan. And he drove us back and forth to Texas every year, pretty much, to see his relatives. So uh, we were driving across the landscape of the West every year, and this was in the days before the interstate highway system or before state parks and roadside rest areas. So we were camping the whole way in a little 9 by 9 umbrella tent, five people and two big dogs, and um, setting up our tent in little county parks where maybe there were there, there were pit toilets and maybe a pump in the middle of the park for water. And, and I was also at that same time reading Western literature because I'd gotten started reading it because my dad read it and we were library goers and I, I just started reading the same books that my dad was reading at the library, which were cowboy novels. So I was reading those books at the same time that I was driving back and forth to Texas uh, across this landscape and looking out the windows at the same landscape that I was reading about in the novels, and then spending my nights um, basically living a sort of quasi-covered wagon life, you know. Um, so I think that all that stuff just sort of imprinted on me. And um, and I also, although I grew up in Western Oregon, which is not, uh, it's, you know, it's rainy and uh, green. It's not like the West we think of. But uh, I s- we were we were poor, and I spent every summer uh, picking strawberries, picking raspberries, picking green beans. Those were my summer jobs, and so I'm used to the kind of mm, agricultural labor, labor, I guess you would say, um, that's p- that is part of uh, what we think of when we think about the West. So all those things, I think, combined have sort of um, set me down that path. Your first novel that you wrote, and you talk about this on your webpage, was a Western. And again, you yourself say that it's kind of odd that you decided to write in, in a, a, two genres that are really typically associated with men. Why? Um, well, I wrote the. I, I began to write the westerns, thinking that I would write um, the ones that I couldn't find on the library shelves. The the westerns in which there were women played important roles, which was not the case in most western literature. So there's that, and then the science fiction actually grew out of the fact that I couldn't find markets for 
the, the Western stories that I was writing, writing Western short fiction, short stories, uh, you look around and there's no place to send them. There, there were then and there are now no markets for Western short fiction. But what I could do is begin to put my people on remote landscapes that were uh, on uninhabited planets, say, and add some element that was magical or mystical or mm, pushing metaphor out to the edges and call it science fiction, I guess. And But I'm still working with the same themes and the same concerns in those stories that I was working at in my, in my Western stories. I think almost all, not all, but most of my science fiction stories are really Western stories that just have been um, sort of pushed out a bit. The Dazzle of Day really struck me as seeming like a, a really traditional cover. You were talking about the covered wagon existence. Uh -huh, that uh -huh. really is the covered wagon existence in space. Yeah, it's a pioneer story, I think. I, that's what I tell people who are resistant to science fiction, people who like my other work and think they don't like science fiction, and I'm always trying to tell them and persuade them. The Dazzle of Day is just, you know, it's just a, a, a novel about the ordinary heroism of ordinary people, people who are working the land, farmers and ranchers, and um, and people who are heading west. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm sure you know Gene Roddenberry likened Star Trek. He said it was yeah. wagon train in space. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, yeah. and you've done a similar Star work. Wars is cowboy, you know. It's the same thing. Sure, it's got the saloon. Firefly, gosh, <laughs> those guys were even wearing six guns. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the simpatico between historical fiction and science fiction, uh, which I think to me is is the world building aspect. There's the world building aspect. I I think it's it's just I heard Cecilia Holland say this, or I read that she had said this, and I think it's really true that we we are just as distanced from 50 years in the past as we are distanced from 50 years in the future. We have just as hard a time imagining those that those people were really alive and really had uh, complicated lives and the same kinds of problems that we have. We have just as much trouble imagining that as imagining that people will still be alive and having problems 50 years after we're dead. And, and so for a writer, it's really n all part of the same continuum. And it, it certainly is for me as I'm uh, building my world. The, the story you read tonight I thought was really just so beautifully written and, and so close to the bone and it really led us to a place of the fantastic and I'm wondering when you started writing that story did you know it was going to be a story of the fantastic? Yeah I knew it was it would be a first contact story yeah I set out to write that. And, and why did you choose the kind of setting that, that you did? You're, you've written science fiction where people go out into space. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what made you decide to start a, a, a science fiction first contact story in the remote western ranch lands? I'd been in that countryside, uh, Steens Mountain countryside, not long before I wrote the story. And um, and I, had, I actually had seen a, a strange light in the sky, a UFO-ish kind of a light. And, and I also knew, because I had done a lot of reading about it that and and have talked to a lot of people out in the open land of the rangeland west that it's pretty common for people in the rangeland west to say that they've seen ufos and sheep herders in particular are known for having s seen many many um ufos and so uh it just occurred to me to wonder well what would happen if it's if, you know what would happen if if actually one of these sheep herders actually didn't just see a UFO, but actually saw an alien being and then didn't tell anybody. 
that was the that was the genesis for it just imagining that that wouldn't in a way would not surprise me that if a, that sheep herders are pretty solitary and they're uh, they're known for um, uh, being pretty unsociable and it, w it just wouldn't surprise me if if they had seen something like that that they wouldn't tell anybody about it and that was what I thought I would write one of the things that's interesting about that story is that you, your human character has more um, communication almost with with the alien being than with anybody else including the humans he talks to well she communicates through body language I guess with the dogs and with the sheep and with the alien it's all pretty much with with body language and um, I deliberately wanted to show that she's actually talking to somebody a little bit at the end when she she buys the telescope and talks to the to the astronomer guy in town so she's moving away from her silence a little bit. One of the things that, that uh, your new novel deals with uh, is another kind of little-known bit of history. Uh, it, it's called The Hearts of Horses, and this is about the horsebreakers of the 1910s who were women? Yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> one in particular, yes. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me, a little, how did you discover that this even happened it's so it, it seems a, as odd as as meeting an alien out in the middle of the <laughs> desert maybe odd maybe not that odd <laughs> um well i had read uh years ago probably now uh, almost 20 years ago i had read in a uh, an oral history teresa jordan's collection which is called uh, cowgirls colon women of the american west or something like that and she had gone around and interviewed um, a couple of dozen women who had grown up in the Intermountain West, mostly in Colorado and Wyoming, and uh, interviewed them about their lives as Western women, women who were uh, more than just uh, the household wife, but but were equal partners maybe with their husbands or who were single ranchers, um, ranch hands, and so on. And in one of those interviews, she's interviewing an old woman named Marie Bell who was talking about the 1910s and World War One, and who said... Uh, in the interview, in those days there were girls who came through the country breaking horses. They were really nice girls. Um, I don't know what they charged. I know that sometimes they came through with two or three horses they were bringing home to break or horses that they'd uh, been given in trade for work they'd done. And they were always um, much gentler with their breaking methods. They weren't like the boys. They didn't buck them out. And I wrote all that down 20 years ago, and it took that long for, for it to compost until I actually could figure out what to do with it and how to make a novel of it. And in the interim then, when I began to do some of the research for the book, I looked for evidence of those women who broke horses and found quite a bit of it. And in fact, you can find it in, in memoirs of women who grew up in the West. There will be references or descriptions of these girls breaking horses for their fathers, for their brothers, for their neighbors. Horses are interesting creatures. I find them kind of frightening, and I, I they don't strike me as very intelligent. I, I can't, I, they're kind of like birds for me. I, I can't grok them, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> t t tell me, well, you spend more time with horses. And, and I'm spending time with them now. I, uh, I used, to, I was around horses a lot when I was a kid, and then for 20 years wasn't around them at all. But, but in writing this book, I've gotten reacquainted. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience of horses. 
Um, well, when I, when I began to write this novel, one of the first things I did was go over to Idaho and spend a couple of weeks on a ranch over there, a big 30,000-acre cattle ranch, um, riding out every day with the cowboys. That is to say, I wasn't doing cowboying, but I was following them, watching them do their work and riding with them, um, just to get comfortable again with horses and, and remembering what it was like to be with them, and, um, and that was my first experience. And then when I came back, I um, went down to the Burns Corrals, the, the corrals in Burns, Oregon, where they gather up the Mustangs, the wild Mustangs, to um, offer some of them for auction to cull the herds because the herds get too big. They're very successful at what they do, wild horses. And so in order to not compete with the cattle and the sheep, they, they cull the herds and keep the numbers of them down. And the ones that they round up, they offer for auction to private parties. So when they, offer, when they have these auctions, they have demos and clinics by horse trainers who will show you how you can start your Mustang toward training. And I watched some of those demos, and then I um, got acquainted with one of those trainers, Leslie Newman, and, um, and she coached me in how to do that work myself. So I have been in the round pen with a colt and, um, and did some of that first touch kind of thing with training a wild Mustang. What was your sense of the animal? Did, I mean, did it feel like a, did you think maybe it was smart as you only different or? or? They're very different. They're very smart. Uh, they, ha they are, in fact, very smart. And, uh, but their knowledge is different than ours. And a lot of it has to do with uh, their understanding of body, body language. Um, I had to do a lot of catching up to get to any kind of point that was even remotely as good as the horse. She, she, he was much smarter than I was in terms of, um, knowing what I meant by any movement of my body and I was very slow to to see the same in him to look at what his movements meant and figure it out. Wildlife includes some uh, elements of the fantastic in a, in a more normal landscape and, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering when you do this do you know exactly what you're going to do do you think I, I've got I, I want to put these elements in there, or, or do, do you discover it through the writing? In that case, I discovered it in the writing. Uh, well, partly through the writing and partly through some things that happened while I was writing it. But um, I, I actually thought in that novel that when sh I knew I would want Charlotte to go lost in the woods, and I actually thought that she would f probably fall in with a group of Indians, a, a, a small family of Indians who were living secretly in the old, old way, uh, somewhat similar to Ishi, Last of His Tribe, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that's what I had intended. And in doing my research for, the, for that, reading about the Northwest tribes and how they lived in the old way and so on, I kept coming upon these descriptions of Zonoqua, the wild people of the woods, who are the genesis for our, uh, our so-called Bigfoot and Sasquatch and so on, um, and, but who are not mythical beings in the recordings of the Northwest tribes. They're not classed with, say, Thunderbird, who's a mythical being. They're instead classed with bears and wolves and, and coyotes as real animals, real fellow creatures. And I kept coming upon those references, and, and because of that, gradually began to see that I could and perhaps should uh, have Charlotte fall in with Zonaqua rather than with the Indians themselves. It was like uh, hmm, a gift to me, I guess, to, to come upon that. Did you do research on, I mean, there's 
a huge body of modern study of, of Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. do research in, among any of those readings? I did all, yeah, I, I've pretty much have read everything that's out there. But, but in terms of inventing or creating a world in which they're living and how they live, um, it's really mostly an act of imagination. Um, I, I just sort of, um, I don't know, I guess I mashed together some things about bears with some things about bonobo, bonobos and uh, high mountain gorillas and uh, a few things like that and created a culture for them that made sense to me. We've been speaking with Molly Gloss. Her newest novel is The Hearts of Horses. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>